back. So I might as well just talk to you for a few minutes. I hope everybody online is doing well. So no, but hey, um, open your Bibles, though, to Revelation chapter 2. We are continuing our series um, entitled Letters to the Church. And what we're looking at is chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation that Jesus is speaking to the Apostle John. Um, He's giving him seven distinct messages for seven distinct churches um, in a place called Asia Minor. And Asia Minor is present-day Turkey. And so Jesus is addressing these churches. Thanks, brother. I appreciate that. And so he's writing to these churches, and um, John is going to be responsible for getting these letters to the church. Now, as I've been saying, even though these are specific letters to specific churches with specific issues and specific things going on in their time, um, that doesn't mean we just read Revelations chapter 2 and 3 and go, okay, I read that, I'm done with it. The idea is, is, hey, what can we pull out of what Jesus was telling them? What truths can we extrapolate out of here? All right? The idea of knowing Um, what was said to these churches for us today is a couple things. One, um, if we can learn um, what was good in these churches, what was good in the lives of these people, we apply that to our life. But then we also need to look at what was wrong with these churches, what was wrong with the people, and go, well, I don't want to act like that. I want to be different. And so we want to pull the truth out and what the question was where we are asking is, what do we need to know? And so we're going to look at the church called, in this place called Pergamum. And we are going to know and look at what do we need to know from this church. So I hope you have your Bibles open. You have an outline. You have some notes. Here's the first thing that we need to know. God's word cuts to bring either salvation or judgment. God's word cuts to bring either salvation or judgment. So there, starting in chapter 2, verse 12, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, I'm going to come back to explain what what the city Pergamum was. But I want to go on, and it says, he says to John, he says, Here's what you need to write, John. The words of him, who's the him? It's Jesus. So the words of Jesus, basically, he's saying about myself, who has the sharp two-edged sword. So he's talking about that he has this two-edged sword. And actually, in chapter 1, verse 16, it even describes that Jesus says that, it says that this two-edged sword was coming out of his mouth. Okay? Now, we need to understand that this is not a literal sword coming out of the mouth of Christ when he's speaking here. What he's talking about, the sword that he's referring to, is the sword of his word. His, 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 the word of God. And we know that because even in Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul is listing the, 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 the armor of God, one of the weapons he says is, is the word of God. He says, he says um, take up the, 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 the sword, which is the word of God. So the word of God is a sword according to Paul in Ephesians 6. In Hebrews chapter 4, Verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, 
discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Just go ahead and leave that verse up there for me, if you would, Tony. Notice it says, again, it's a sharper than a two-edged sword, okay? And it, and it pierces, and it cuts, and it divides, all right? This is what it does. It, 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 it's not just goes in one ear and out the other. The Word of God is living. It's not just a history book. It's living and active, and, and it gets in you, and it works, and it does something in you. But here's the thing. It cuts, all right? Notice, again, Hebrews and also here in Revelation, it calls it a two-edged sword. Now, biblically, we got to remember when the Bible, the New Testament especially, was written during the Roman Empire. And so when, when the writers of Scripture, especially like when Paul would have written like Ephesians 6 and he was comparing the, the armor of God, he was looking at a Roman soldier. And so when he looks at the sword of the soldier, this is the kind of sword that he would have been looking at. Kind of, um, this was, was the battle sword of a Roman soldier. And that blade was sharp on both sides. It wasn't like just one side. No, it was sharp on both sides. So that way, no matter how that Roman soldier swung his arm, that blade could cut on both sides. Okay? That's what the Bible is comparing itself to. This. A double-edged sword. All right? A double-edged sword that is sharp. And it cuts both ways. It cuts in different ways. And specifically, where I want to go today with this point is that the Word of God cuts two different ways. One is that when you hear the Word of God preached, here's what it does. It will bring conviction, okay? It, it, it will cut on the inside. And what it does is, is when, when you hear the Word of God and you're convicted by it and it's starting to cut inside, what it will do, it will cause a person to come to the place where they repent, where they confess their sin, where all of a sudden they realize, I'm a sinner, Jesus died for me, and guess what the Word of God does in that sense? It brings salvation. Because it's cut to the core of the person. It's the same thing that happened in Acts chapter 2. When Peter preaches his very first sermon to thousands of people, and, and when he's all finished, it says that the people's hearts were cut. Meaning that word that Peter delivered to the people wasn't just his words. He was preaching for the first time God's word. And it went into the heart of people. It went into the mind, through the ear, into the mind, to the heart, and it cut. And then the people are so overwhelmed by it, they look at Peter and go, tell us what we must do to be saved. You see, that's cutting. It's cutting the heart. It's bringing conviction. And it's overwhelming the people to a degree that they need salvation. That's one way the Word of God cuts. But it's a two-edged sword. And there's times where the Word of God cuts another way. You see, there are times where when a person can hear the Word preached, and it convicts, but the person refuses and rejects the Word. They don't want that truth. They don't want to listen to that truth. They don't want to accept that truth. And so instead of the Word of God... Um, like in, in the first person, it brings salvation. It brings life change. It brings transformation. It, it, it causes that person to become different. 
the person that refuses the truth, rejects the truth, doesn't want to accept the truth, that word, the word of God, now becomes a source of condemnation and judgment. Because the more I reject the truth of God's word, the more I reject Christ, the Bible makes it very clear. If you continue to reject Christ, you reject his word, there will come a time in your life that that word will judge you. You don't want to be on that side of the blade. Okay? You want to come to a place where your heart, your mind is changed by the word of God. Your heart is convicted by the word of God. And your will is challenged by the will of God. And that the word of God is changing you, transforming you. And the way that does it is because it cuts and it goes deep and it does something inside. So the word of God, it can cut to either bring salvation or judgment. The question is, is which one do you want? Here's the second thing that we need to know today. No church nor Christian is unknown and insignificant to Jesus. No church or a Christian is unknown and insignificant to Jesus. So he's writing to this church called Pergamum, in, in a city called Pergamum. Now let's get an idea of the city of Pergamum. Number one, it's a weird name to start with, Pergamum. But Pergamum was actually the capital city of Asia Minor. Um, it was a very important city. It was a very well-known city because Pergamum was actually the epicenter of pagan worship. They had all kinds of temples um, built in the city to worship all the false gods of the Romans. But not only was it a pagan um, worship place, it was also the center of um, Roman emperor worship. Chuck Swindoll says it this way. He says, um, Pergamum was the official center of the imperial cult, having built its first great temple in 29 BC in honor of the goddess Roma and the emperor Augustus. You see, the people in this town would build these false, these temples, whether it was to a false god or a man. And, and the way they set the, the whole emperor worship thing up was, was they, they required people to go to the temple to worship Caesar. And one of the things they had to say was, Hail Caesar, meaning Caesar is Lord. That's where this church is at, in this city. Now I want you to notice the first few words of verse 13. Jesus writes, I know where you dwell. Now, we have seen in all the other letters that we have looked at, and we're going to see it again in the next two, Jesus, he says, I know something about you. I, I know your works. But here he's like, I know where you dwell. Now, what caught my attention about this was, was this. And I started thinking about these seven churches. And the thing that I kind of thought about of these seven churches is that there's two of them, two of the seven that are mentioned in other places in scripture. Laodicea, which we'll study here in a couple weeks, is mentioned in the book of Colossians. And then you have Ephesus. I mean, Ephesus has its own book in the Bible, the book of Ephesians, okay? So five 
of the seven churches are unknown, nowhere else in Scripture, and relatively, seemingly insignificant. I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, you, you would think that if there were churches that Jesus wanted to get after, if he was looking at problems in the church or, or what they were doing good in the church, man, you would think he would go to like the, the mega churches. He would go to the churches that had some, some oomph going on, that, man, they were booming in population and they had big ministries, they had big budgets. He would, you would think that he would be like not wasting his time with insignificant churches because in Scripture, we know about certain churches. We know about the church in Jerusalem. We know about the church in Rome. We know about the church in Ephesus, Coloss, Philippi, and Corinth. And the reason why we know a lot about those churches is because they're mentioned a lot in Scripture. And in fact, Philippi, Corinth, Coloss, and Ephesus are Bible books in your Bible. I mean, these would be considered the mega churches, the churches that are important. The churches that are making a difference. So I'm sitting there thinking if Jesus wants to be like, hey, hey, John, I need you to write a letter. Um, here are the important churches. You need to go after them. That's not what he's doing. The majority of the churches he writes to, no one in history for the past 2,000 years have read about in Scripture. Quiet. Insignificant unknown but yet Jesus is saying John here's five churches that you need to talk to showing me to Jesus there are no unknown churches or unknown people there are no insignificant churches or insignificant people to Christ what you do as a person, good or bad, is important to him. Okay? He's not looking at your life going, ah, you live in alpha. Nobody knows you. Live how you want. You're not that important. How many of you know um, if you live in Woodhall or Alpha or a town of a thousand people, um, if you're a believer, guess what? Jesus is coming after you still. He wants to still change you and transform you. He, he wants his word working in you. He's not, he, he doesn't say, well, you need to live in a population of at least 50,000 in order for me to have any notice of you. You notice he's, he's looking at these churches going, you know what? Nobody else knows you. Nobody else thinks you're significant, but I do. And, and he's looking at the churches and he's like, he's commending them for things and he's condemning them for things. He doesn't care if it's a large church or a small church. He's going after it. Why? Because to Jesus, every church matters and every Christian matters. And he's going after you. You see, we as people, guess what we do? We look at big churches. You know, we look at churches who, you know, big churches with big budgets, with big buildings, with big ministries. And we're like, well, that's an important church. I mean, look at all the cars in their parking lot. Look at how many ministries they got going on. Man, they got a staff of 30. That church has got to be important. Or we look at individuals. Maybe they're a Christian singer. Or maybe they're on television preaching. Or maybe it's someone in a church. Man, they, they're a leader of, of 300 people. 
Wow, they're important. Look at, look at what they're doing. But who am I? I don't have any impact. I mean, I, I lead a small group of four people. I don't even lead a small group. I haven't done anything significant for Jesus. Who am I? And we look at ourselves that way. Man, our church is in, our church is in Woodhall. 700 people. No stoplights. We all have all of about 100 and some people. Why? Who are we as a church? We're nobody. Can I tell you a story? Me and Paula actually talked about this this morning. I took over this church, you know, coming up on Labor Day weekend 20 years ago. Became a pastor. And, and when I first became the pastor, the founding pastor of this church, we went down and talked to. He was here for five years. And then he, he left for um, a bigger city, a bigger church, bigger budget. So we were sitting there talking to him one day, and, and here's what he pretty much said to us. He's like, you know what? Don't get too fired up about um, seeing your, your church really, really do a lot of things. Basically, he, was like, he, he said this. He's like, um, God is more concerned about the bigger cities and the bigger churches because it's a stewardship issue. He can't do a lot of things in smaller churches. So don't. And Paul and I were really offended by that. Now, granted, has this church grown to a thousand people? Nope. Have we had recording artists come out of this church? Nope. But let me ask you this. Raise your hand if this church has impacted your life. Now look around. Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Now look around. Can I tell you, even though we have not had hundreds or thousands of people in this church, I know it's impacted people. I look at, you know, I, I just think of, of Cole Kessinger. We just talked about him a couple weeks ago. He grew up in this church, and now he has his master's of divinity degree, looking maybe one day to get his doctorate and teach as a professor at a Christian school. I mean, come on. That's awesome. And he comes out of a church of a small town doing what would be to some people insignificant. Here's what I do know is um, there is no individual who is a believer in Jesus Christ who is significant in his eyes. Whatever you're doing in your life, he, want, he knows about it. He knows where you dwell. He knows the works in your life. And guess what, man? He is going to work in your life. You are not insignificant to him. Just because you may not be doing a great, like, in the eyes of people, something awesome, you are still awesome in his eyes, no matter how small it is. Because if it's, if it's moving his kingdom... If you have had, listen, if you have brought someone, just even one person to Jesus Christ, can I tell you, you've made a difference. And same with this church. Man, we may not be, a, you know, a few hundred people. We may not have a lot of men, but I'm telling you, we're making an impact. And that's all that matters. Jesus knows this church and where we are. We don't have to be a mega church. We don't have to be in a church of a big town. You know what? We may not be known by everybody, but we are known by somebody, and his name is Jesus. And that's all that matters. And so we need to know. So we need to know that God's word cuts, and it brings either salvation or judgment. We need to know that there's no church nor Christian who is unknown and insignificant to Jesus. And here's the third thing. Don't escape the darkness, but keep being the light. Don't escape the darkness, but keep being the light. Look at verse 13. 
Again, Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my, deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Now, notice Jesus says, I know where you dwell and I know who else dwells there. Who else dwells there with the church? Satan is dwelling there. Okay, Satan, Jesus says, oh, by the way, um, his throne is there. And the reason why Pergamum was such a, like, 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 like the, the, the hot spot where Satan's like, where am I going to go? Oh, I know where I'm going to go. I'm going to go to that false worshiping, pagan worshiping, emperor worshiping place called Pergamum because, man, that place is my kind of place. And he pitches his tent there. And he's like, I'm going to make my dwelling in this city. You know, I've been to a lot of conferences in my life, in my ministry time. And it's funny when you, to, to listen to pastors talk, oh my gosh. I just, I roll my eyes at pastors sometimes. Because pastors, I'm telling you, it is like two fourth graders. My dad's bigger than your dad. No, he's not. My dad's bigger than your dad. And pastors just are annoying sometimes. And they will sit there and compare one another who's doing what. But sometimes pastors will, 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 will get envious of, of churches who are bigger. And you'll hear pastors, especially smaller, smaller pastors, will look at churches in bigger cities and go, well, if anybody can grow a church in that city... I mean, look at how many cars they got driving by their church. I mean, look at their building. Anybody can do that. If he was in my town, nah, -uh, that wouldn't be happening. I wondered if this pastor ever went to a conference. He'd be looking around going, you all think you got rough place? Dude, let me tell you something. Satan is in my town. Oh, we got Satan. No, 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 no. He is like camped out in my town. He's dwelling there. And I'm telling you, he's coming after us. You see, Jesus is commending this church now. And look what he says. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. He's commending this church and even, even one of their own, Antipas. We don't know who this guy is, but this guy was killed from their church. And Jesus is like, hey, I am commending you that Satan is dwelling where your church is, in this city, and you are holding on to me. You see, this church made a decision. Um, they, they're in a dark place. I'm, I'm pretty sure um, nobody's inviting the church people to anything else. But here's what they didn't do. The pastor and the elders weren't like, okay, we're having a church meeting tonight because it's way too tough here, man. We've decided to go plant in another church. We really like Ephesus. That church is doing some things up there. In fact, they're even in the Bible, and we're going to go next. They didn't do that. They dug in, and they said, you know what? This is a dark place. Guess what has to shine? The light of Christ. And we are the only light in this place. And if we bug out, there is no light. So we've got to stay faithful to Christ. We've got to stay continually to be faithful as a light here in Pergamum. It's a great message for us today. 
Maybe you are the only believer on your job. And you are the butt of every joke. When I worked at the prison, and you know, you think, well, that's a dark place because of prisoners. Nah. It was a dark place because of people I worked with. I was called Father Shannon. I was called, you know, preacher boy, whatever you want. I was called it because I literally was the only Christian on my shift. But I'll never forget the day when a young girl came to me. And I mean young girl, probably in her 20s. And said, I hear you're a Christian. How do I get saved? I just kept being the light in the darkness. And you may be the only light at your job. You may be the only believer in that dark place. Keep being the light. Listen, we need to understand that the world is getting darker and more hostile toward the church and toward believers. And believers don't have time to recoil. We don't have time to go, wow, man, it's just too dark. Maybe you're the only believer in your family. And you're like, you know what? We're not going to Thanksgiving anymore. I hate going there. We show up and, you know, my brother John just unleashes his, you know, anti-Jesus stuff on me. And I'm just fed up with it. So you know what? We're doing Thanksgiving at home from now on. Forget them. They can go to hell. No, keep being the light. Take it for Jesus. Take one on the chin for Jesus because you're being the light. Can I tell you, even churches are scared of the darkness. Well, we can't let those kind of people in the church. What will people think if we start letting those kind of people in the church? When I did youth ministry, between the years of 98 and 2000, um, some of the kids that we had coming to this church, because back then there was, that was the goth movement, and, and I'm telling you, we had kids coming to this church that were scary. But here was a scarier thing. We had parents take their kids out of our youth ministry and tell me right to my face, you've got the wrong kids coming to your youth ministry. And I went, wrong kids? What are wrong kids? Meaning they're too sinful. They need the light. Guess what? We as a church got to be the light. And, but yet so many Christians, guess what we do? We escape the, the darkness. We run from it. And what we do is we run to each other. We just, we have our happy holy huddle. And that, man, I'm safe in this thing. I'm not going to be the light. I'm not going to be a witness to people who are sinners because, man, it's just too dark out there. Listen, the question is this. If we as Christians, as believers, keep pulling out, I quit my job, I don't go to my family reunions, I don't do anything, man, we just, we just, go, I go to, I go to my Christian meetings, I go to my Christian group, I go to Christian service, I just do my Christian thing, and I just have, if all of us Christians keep pulling out of the darkness, how will people who are in the dark know they're in the dark? They won't. You see, that's why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. He says, how can they believe in whom they've never believed? And how can they believe if they've never heard? How can they hear if no one preaches? And how can they preach 
if no one is sent. And then he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You see, when Paul talks about preaching in that mess and that, that, that scripture, he's not talking about what I'm doing. The word preaching means to proclaim, to tell. He's talking about everybody. He's like, the only way someone who know, who's in the dark comes to the light is when we all keep in the darkness. We don't become the darkness, but we got to stay in the darkness and remain the light. We've got to be witnessing. We've got to be sharing our faith with people. No matter what we get back. Listen, the world's going to be hostile to you. Just bank on it. But keep being the light. Because I'm telling you, you never know when someone will come to you. This is what I've heard about you. Can you give me some answers? That day will come. But you've got to keep being the light. Here's the fourth thing. Here's the fourth thing we need to know. When circumstances get hard, your faith, keep your faith anchored to the Lord. When circumstances get hard, keep your faith anchored to the Lord. So again in verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, you hold fast to my name. And then he says, you did not deny my faith. Or some of you may have a version that says, you did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. So Jesus is like, listen, um, the fire's been turned up where you're at. And, and, and it's gone from bad to worse, from hard to harder. L let me ask you, um, when people in the congregation start getting killed because of their faith, um, raise your hands if you think that's getting hard. That's getting hard. Because I'm telling you, if we got the announcement saying, oh, by the way, um, someone in your church was killed because they were a Christian and they're coming after you, that would be hard. You see, this church, the only way they could endure the darkness and the hardness was to anchor themselves to Christ. They did not deny. They were like, man, we're not going to hell, Caesar. Whatever happens, if we get strung up on a post and we're lit up like a torch, so be it. If we get fed to the lions, so be it. If we, whatever it is, if we are killed because of our faith, so be it. We're not moving. We are hanging on to Jesus and we're not denying him. Listen. The reality is life gets hard. And about the time we think, man, it's, it's going to let up, it gets harder. The storm is, is raging. And about the time, you know, it's like, it's like the hurricane blows in and the eye of the storm comes over the life. And you're like, okay, what's cooling out? And then all of a sudden, you get hit again. And it's just like one thing after another. And, and how many of you know... Um, you start scratching your head and, and looking at God going, what is happening? The reality is when we are going through the storm, going through the pain, going through the trial, going through whatever it is, and it seems to be getting harder, guess where you've got to be anchored to? You have got to be anchored to Christ. If you're anchored to anything else, I'm telling you, you're going to sink. Being anchored to Christ means, hey, when the waves hit, I'm anchored. 
when, when the, 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 the wind is blowing, I'm anchored. When it feels like I'm drowning, I'm anchored. And I'm anchored to him. No matter how hard the storm is blowing in your life, no matter how hot the fire is in your life, anchored to Christ. Do you want to know the real key in order to stay anchored to Christ? It's this. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the book of Mark, he falls down and he prays. And he says this. He prays and he says, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Now, it doesn't stop there. Jesus doesn't get up and go, okay, this, this cup's going to be moved. Because I, I asked, God, bet, he better do it and, and walk away. And when it wasn't removed, he didn't get mad and get up tight and get it. No, no, no. He stayed on his knees and he finished the prayer. Father, I know all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. But not what I will. But what you will. That, loved ones, is the key to staying anchored to Christ. You see... Let's be, let's be honest. Can we just have honesty in church? We Americans are spoiled. I mean, I mean, it's just not preaching we're hearing. From the time we are, you know, from the time we get to go into school, you know, we are just continuing to fed. We're fed the message of the American promise, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, the American dream. That's what we promise immigrants when they come here. Man, you're going to, it's the American dream. You're going to have prosperity. You're going to, you're going to, and, and this is what we are just fed. And so as, as, as Christians, we're fed this from the world, from, from our American side. But guess what? Now we're also going to get fed from the church side. I mean, how many pastors, how many preachers, how many people are writing books about, no, God wants you healthy, happy, prosperous. He wants all these things in your life. And yet people are going sideways because life is turning upside down and crashing. And people are like, I don't get it. I mean, I, I keep being told I'm supposed to be half, happy and healthy and God's giving me all this stuff. Then how come God is taking me through the storm? Because that's who he is. He allows us to go through the storms. And on this side of heaven, how many of you know we are not promised the answer? What we only have is to be able to go, God, I know all things are possible for you. And we pray that, God, you are the impossible. You're the God of the you. You can do anything, God. You can move the mountain. You can do it, God. I know you can. And God, I ask that you would do this in my life. God, I ask, remove the cancer from my life. God, I ask that, we, that this will not end in death. God, I'm asking that you provide the finances. God, I'm asking that you bring my child home. God, I'm asking this. But can you, in that moment when you ask that, be able to stop and then pray? Not my will be done. Your will, Father. And can you anchor your life to Christ so strongly that if God so chooses not to answer your prayer, according to you, can you still remain faithful to him? Can you still live your life going, God, it's not me. 
It's all about you. Your will be done. And God, if you don't want to heal me of cancer, your will be done. And God, if you, you don't want to give me that job, your will be done. And God, if fill in the blank, your will be done. You see, the reality is we want God to come down to our level and answer our prayers on our level. And guess what? The moment God comes down to your level, guess what he no longer is? God. He's a God that you can handle. And that's not God. That's what the people in Pergamum were doing. They were worshiping gods they could handle. God Almighty is not a God to be handled. Just because you think he's not aligning with what you, should, what you want, how you want, when you want, doesn't make him not good. We need to understand that God's goodness is defined on a level that you and I don't understand. You and I, we got to understand God is still good even in the pain of my life. Why? Because you don't understand what God's goodness truly is. Until we get to heaven, there's so much about God that you and I don't even know. And so the thing is, can you remain anchored to Christ through whatever you're going through? Stay anchored to him. And then here's the last thing, number five. Compromise of God's truth will result in compromise of godly character. Compromise in God and God's truth will result in compromise of godly character. So Jesus now, he's, he's, he's passed the commendation. Now in verse 14, he has to bring some condemnation. So in verse 14, he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who are holding to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they, they, they might not eat, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now what is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about, so, so here's the thing. This church was able to resist the, the, the head-on onslaught of Satan roaring like a lion coming at them. I mean, they had people in their church dying. They were being persecuted, and they were hanging on, man. They were just like, we're not moving. But yet, when Satan comes in like the, like the cunning, deceiving snake, he's able to make his way into the church. You see, when Jesus is talking about people holding on to the teachings of Balaam and the teachings of the Nicolaitans, it's deceptive teaching that has creeped into the church. And it's caused moral character to corrode. First, like with the Nicolaitans, I, I talked about this a couple weeks ago um, in the, with, with the church of Ephesus. The, the, the Nicolaitans, their name basically sums up who they were. It means the conqueror of people. And so these Nicolaitans were people coming into the church, and what they were was they wanted to be the authority. They wanted to be in control of the church. They didn't want to submit to the leadership of the church. So what they began to do was to be like a snake, and they would, hey, we're going get to get, get a small group going over here. And they begin to teach people, hey, you know what, don't listen to, to your elders. Don't listen to your pastor. You know what? Um, and, and they began to teach in a way where they wanted the people to view them as the leader. And they started leading people astray. And Jesus is saying, you need to repent of this. 
Because in the, the Ephesian church, he applauded the, the Ephesian church because they didn't put up with it. They dealt with it. Not this church. The leadership of this church and the people of this church are like, oh, that's okay. And they were letting people, letting other men um, rule over. And it was destroying the church. But the teaching of Balaam was more of a deceptive, more of a, a, a moral character breakdown. Balaam, if you go back to the book of Numbers, you can read about Balaam. Um, Balaam was a prophet of God. He wasn't a false prophet, but boy, he was a wicked one. Okay, his heart was bad. And Balak was actually the king of, of the Moabite people. So I'm going to give you the very quick crib notes of this thing, okay? Broad strokes. Balak saw the nation of Israel um, in the desert, and he got scared that they were going to come and, 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 and destroy his people, the Moabites. So Balak, King Balak, he, he knows about Balaam. He's like, I know this guy. You can pay this guy off, and he'll, he'll, like, he'll like say a curse. So he tried to hire Balaam, a prophet of God, to come and curse Israel. And, and he's like, well, let me go talk to God. And God's like, um, no, you're not doing it, dude. Just shut up. And um, so Balak kept trying to pay him off and kept saying, come on, curse him, curse him. Well, four times Balaam said oracles, four oracles. And the idea was that he was like, well, if God won't let me do it, I'm going to kind of like do it anyway. And he, and he was saying these oracles in the intention to try to curse Israel. But God's like, really, really? You think I don't see that? And God turned it into a blessing. And he's like, you try to curse my people, I'm going to bless them even more. And so Balak was like getting all uptight, like, Why are you, what are you doing? And Balaam was like, not me, dude. And then Balaam got an idea. He's like, I know how I can get my money from this guy. I will teach him and his people how to deceive God's people. And what he did was he's like, here's what you do. Have a big party. Invite all the Israelites on over. And when you bring them over, get them interested in your gods. And then get them interested in your women. And I'm telling you, you may not have to curse them by the curse of God, but they will fall. And guess what? It worked. This guy who called himself a prophet of God was able to deceive the, 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 the Israelites into moral decay. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's like, man, you guys have people in your church teaching things that are causing people to be morally decayed. You see, the, the, the real idea of, of the teaching of Balaam is this. Hey, you can have one foot with God, one foot with the world. You can, you can serve God, but man, you can still serve the world. You can love God, but you can still love the world. You can, you can, you can say you're a Christian, but you can also love your sin. You see, that's what was happening in this church. And Jesus is like, mm-mm, can't. And that's why he says, repent. And then he says, if you don't repent, I will war against you with my word. Notice he goes back to who he was. I've got a sword coming out of my mouth. And if I have to, I'm going to use it. And he's going to bring judgment on this church because of the moral breakdown. And we need to understand that in my life, in the church, that you know what? We can't be thinking, well, I can love the world. I can love Jesus. I can, I can live in the world. And I can live with Jesus and think it'll be okay. 
when I compromise the truth of God's word, I'm going to compromise my godly character. And then Jesus goes on. We're going to just close with the final words. So he says, repent. Verse 17, he says, he who has ears, let him hear what the spirit of the church say unto the churches. That's just a great word. He's like, listen, if you have an ear, listen up. And he's basically saying, hey, don't let it go in one ear and out the other. Let it go in an ear and where? Go into your mind, to your heart, into your life. Listen what I'm saying to the churches. And then he goes on and he says, to the one who conquers or overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. This is talking about, again, eternity. Um, just like manna sustained Israel in the desert, the spiritual stuff that we're going to have in, in heaven are, is going to sustain us forever. And then he goes on, he goes, I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone. Now, I don't think anybody really understands what that is. I tried to, a lot of commentaries have a lot of, well, this could be it, could be it. We really don't know. But, but are we going to get a new name? I don't know. Um, but I, I thought about this. If you were to ask Paula, what would be, what, what I'm hoping for my new name would be? Did you hear she goes, oh, my gosh. She knows where I'm going. What would my new name be? Say it loud. Doc. Doc. I don't know why. I just, I just want people to call me Doc. Like Doc Holiday. I mean, people come up to you and go, hey, Doc. You're just like, hey, what's going on? I really hope my white stone has Doc on it. I'm like, yes, Doc, finally. Paula thinks I'm weird, but, but I don't know. You know. I don't know what the new name thing is, but... but but maybe it's a name specifically that God knows. We don't know. But all we do know is Jesus finished up his letter simply with this. If you know me, if you're conquering, you're overcoming the world through me, you've got an eternity waiting for you. You've got an eternal hope waiting for you. And that's the hope you and I have. And that's why we can, man, I'm telling you, that's why we can maintain being the light in the darkness because we have an eternal hope coming. That's why we can stay strong in the storm, because we have an eternal hope coming. This life is not it, folks. You're just passing through. You're a wave crashing into the sea, a mist in the air. You're here but for a moment. And I'm telling you, you know, Jesus, life is coming. Amen? Let's all stand and close.